so the sermon I'm delivering this morning kicks off our Advent series, uh, as Seth explained. He couldn't help but preaching. There's such a preacher in him. He had to come up. This is something that we as a church have done ever since I've been here, which is uh, four years or so. And wow, time sure flies. For some of you, it's probably felt like it's dragged on, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movie series, which there's a lot of those. (laughs) Some people just got upset. But I can say for me and my family, it's gone fast. In that time, you all have welcomed my family as one of your own. And although it's been a short time for my wife and I, it's literally been my children's pretty much entire lives. Um, I'm grateful for the ways that you've loved us, you've cared for us, when in need, when we've had babies, you brought lots of good food to us, um, and you've sharpened us. I can truly say that all of the Mitchells look more like Christ, although still very far from him, (laughs) because of you, and so I thank you for it. Uh, Truly, I don't think I'd be standing up here expositing the word this morning without in some due part with you expositing word to me, both in deed and in your speech. So thank you, truly. And also, as I finish buttering you up before placing you in the oven, (laughs) I want to thank Seth and Bob for how they've poured into me, uh, particularly Seth, for giving me the opportunity to preach, um, to stand in the pulpit in which you so often reside. Um, I recognize there's a level of trust required for the opportunity And I can't promise that fire will fall, but I've done my best in preparation, so thank you. So in kicking off our Advent series, as Seth made clear, we do look backwards, and this is very important. We certainly look backwards, but we don't only look backwards. We also look forwards. This is something I want to make incredibly clear to you. Although Advent is typically done retrospectively, meaning we look back at the first coming of Christ, It's not only that. In fact, by only looking historically, we greatly diminish what Christ's first coming was about. If we only look backwards, we neglect to look all the things that he came for in not looking forwards. Actually, our text for today, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, and I'd love it if you could turn there. Whether you have a Bible or have your phone, there's also Bibles in front of you um, under your chairs. Um, because we'll be spending most of our time there, but it deals with many forward-looking things, namely the second coming of Christ and his bodily resurrection, which Paul wrote in part, as I'll discuss in a moment, because his initial preaching to the Thessalonians was cut short and likely gave him no opportunity to discuss God's plan for the future consummation of history. You see, Christ did not just come to die. I actually remember in my membership interview years ago with Seth, for those of you that have gone through it, uh, we basically dispel the gospel. What do you believe the gospel to be? And I made sure to emphasize the first part, which was Christ came to die, but Seth gently reminded me Christ did not just come to die. I don't know if you remember this, but I do. Um, Christ also came to ascend. He came to defeat death, sin in the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father until all his enemies will be placed under his footstool and he will return again in glory. And so, due to the Christmas season, we certainly celebrate the coming of our good Lord in flesh and his first advent, but we would be remiss if we do not look to his second. 
And what better timing than in the midst of our study of Revelation, which so often deals with God's consummation of history, do we celebrate both Christ's first coming and his second? When Seth asked which topic we'd like to preach on, I was kind of grateful Bob had preached on hope three times in a row. (laughs) He's like, I don't necessarily want to do hope again. Does somebody else want to do it? (laughs) He's exhausted the topic. So I'm grateful that I can preach on hope, and I hope to impart some hope to you today. So for those taking notes, the title of today's sermon is technically Advent-Hope, but if you're extra like me, the title I'm using is The Children of Light's Seasonal Guide. The Children of Light's Seasonal Guide. Again, the text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now, this is a rather chunky section of scripture. There's just a lot here. It's a lot of verses. So you must forgive me. There will be certainly parts that I go in more depth than others. One thing I'd encourage you is read the context. Read around it. Read it this week. Talk about it in your community groups. That's one thing I love about our church is we have the opportunity to do that. So, let's read. These are the words of the living God. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore... Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that we can come together to worship you. How grateful we are that you've revealed yourself to us through your scripture, but not just your scripture. You sent your son in flesh to die for us, to come again, Lord God, to raise up, return to you, and then come back. So, Lord, we celebrate your first advent. We preach it to ourselves, we teach it to our kids, but Lord, we also look forward to your return when there will be no more tears, there will be no more sadness. Lord, how grateful we are that you brought your son to us, but that he'll return again to rescue us. Thank you for the hope you've given us. May we always look to it, may we always look toward it. We praise you, O Lord, in your son's name, amen. So... To set the stage a bit, Thessalonians, as I said previously, was written by the Apostle Paul as evidenced by the beginning of the letter and was written to the church at Thessalonica. But the reason it was written certainly has some significance to what I want to illustrate to you this morning, and I think a perfect passage for the start of Advent. You see, prior to this letter, Paul had been in Thessalonica, and to quote Thessalonians 2.2, had been shamefully treated. So he had been there, and it says he'd been shamefully treated. He had been treated differently than what he deserved. 
Acts 17, too, actually goes into more detail on this shameful treatment and shows that Paul had been on a missionary tour, as he had done so often, preaching in the Thessalonian synagogue, and it said he had been there three subsequent Sabbaths. So picture this, he's there preaching three weeks in a row, and essentially what happens is a wicked, wicked men form a mob and run Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town. So this letter, this Thessalonians, the first Thessalonians as well, the second letter, are written on the backside of this riot. The backside of Paul being there preaching the word of God and being kicked out. An example of this would be our elders, which recently preached on the gifts of the Spirit. They get to gentleness and suddenly they get kicked out before they're able to preach on self-control. So he's basically been able to give a partial picture Right? He's been able to preach to them the word of God, but he probably was not able to get to the full consummation of history. He was not able to espouse all of the scriptures because he was cut off before he expected and then tra- shamefully treated. So I think a predominant theme of the letter is the same reason we don't just look back to the first advent, but also forward to Christ's second coming. Because Paul was only able to give a partial picture to the Thessalonians, he wanted to finish it. And the way he finished it was by writing to them in First and Second Thessalonians. And it's why these letters so often deal with the end of history. A major theme of the letters is God's consummation of history. And this is in part called the Day of the Lord. Now, I'm going to be talking about the Day of the Lord all throughout this sermon. So it may be something to pencil in. But to summarize... The day of the Lord is a phrase used throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it refers to the ultimate period when God will administer both judgment and restoration through the first and second comings of Christ. I'll say that one more time. The day of the Lord is a phrase used both in the Old and New Testament to refer to the ultimate period when God will administer both judgment but also restoration through the first and second comings of Christ. So, if it was important enough for Paul to write to a people that he had been unable to give a complete picture to of God's plan, and that writing has a primary theme of dealing with Christ's second advent, named the day of the Lord, then it is certainly important for us in this advent series to not only look back, but also look forward. In a way, modeling exactly what Paul has done in this letter. And as we look forward, we must do so with great hope. This is why my overarching summary, for those that are taking notes, pen this down. My overarching summary for our time today in dealing with 1 Thessalonians 5 is this. As children of light, we soberly prepare with hope for the most terrible and great day of the Lord, no matter the season. Once more, as children of light, we soberly prepare with hope for the most terrible and great day of the Lord, no matter the season. So, I first want to deal with children of light. Who are they? Who are they not? What do they do? Well, my first point in breaking this out is, in all seasons there is light and darkness. In all seasons there is both light and darkness. Starting in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, it says, Now concerning the times, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. As we see, this letter is written specifically to brothers. We must look to that first to define the children of light. If we just point to the fact that it says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. If we just pluck that out, we can make the mistake of thinking Paul is speaking to everyone everywhere. But he's not. All does not always mean all. He's speaking specifically to brothers, those who are of the household of faith. So children of light are brothers and sisters in Christ. The term children of light is a bit of a self-descriptive phrase, but Paul goes further to say in verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. This is the reason I say that in all seasons there is light and darkness. There are children of light, and there are children of darkness. For there to be children of light, there must be something to compare that to. What is the opposite of light? Darkness. What is the opposite of day? Night. The day of the Lord that 1 Thessalonians is describing will be the most glorious day in all of history, but only for the children of light. For those who are not children of light, The day of the Lord, Christ's second coming, his second advent, will be the most terrifying day in all of history, for it will be a day of judgment. I promise you, it will be absolutely glorious for all those he saves. There will be no more tears. There will be nobody crying in heaven, and how glorious it will be. But for all of those who oppose him, it will be frightening beyond belief. So to you, brothers and sisters, you are of the light. You are literally children of the light. You are of the day. It says you are children of the day. And as children of the light, you are to shine brightly in a world that so needs your light. Matthew 5.14 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Do not hide your light. Shine it. Shine this hope that you have. But to you who are not of the light, I plead with you, repent of your sin and join us on this journey to the celestial city. But the next question you may have is, when is the day of the Lord? I must prepare, you say. When will it be? I must know. Here's the reality. Children of light need not know times or seasons. This is my second point. Children of light, you need not know the times or the seasons. 1 Thessalonians 5.1 opens this ways opens this way. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Children of the light have no need of warning because they have no need of fear. Believers, you have no need of fear for the second advent. You have no need to know when it will be. I was asked the other night a great question by my oldest son, Ezra, during family worship. He asked, Dad, why do we say we fear God? And this is probably a question that other children here have too. So kids, if you're listening, I'm sure adults do as well, tune in. Here's a reason why we say we fear God. There are two types of prominent fear. One is a slave-like fear. It's called a servile fear. This is how the Israelites would have felt under Pharaoh during the Exodus. They're scared. Believers don't have this fear of their Abba Father, of their God. But because he is their father and he is almighty, a healthy fear is called a filial fear. 
It's a reverence. It's a respect. It's similar to what children have with their earthly father who loves and cares for them, but is withholding force and meekness, to quote Caleb. (laughs) So when Paul says that you have no need to have anything written to you, he prefaces it with a certain specific group of people, brothers, meaning those within the household of faith, God's children. By this, we can make the inference that there is indeed a group of people who have need of warning. But for those who have no need, children of light, to act like those who have need is not merely uncouth. It's completely out of step with who we are now in Christ. Think about this. When a loving earthly father comes home to his children, they are expectant and excited. Truthfully, the only reason I want to leave is so I can come back home. (laughs) It's so fun to have my kids. Daddy! But if I were to come home and there was someone doing awful things to my family, they should fear. So only believers, children of God, are the ones who do not have to worry or fear of Christ's return. Matthew 6.31 says, Therefore, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the unrepentant are the ones to worry. They're the ones to seek after these things. They're the ones to have these fears in life. But you have no need, brothers and sisters, and here's why. Because the coming of the Lord will be the coming of the day. It's called the day of the Lord, after all. And for those who are already children of the day, those who have no need to have anything written to them about the timing, Paul says in verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know this, and why do you know it? Because my third point Children of light are ready in season and out of season. Children of light are ready in in season and out of season. They're ready no matter the day. We have no need to set dates, make predictions, come up with ridiculous book titles like 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988 (laughs) or 23 Reasons Why a Pre-Tribulation Rapture Looks Like It Will Occur in 1993 because I guess the 1988 one wasn't good enough. And before you think these are just niche book titles, that first one sold over four and a half million copies. So this is not just some small issue that maybe a small corner of the world deals with. These are bestsellers that sit on Christians' bookshelves. But brothers and sisters, these are not characteristics of the children of the light. You know it's coming, and you know that the Lord holds your soul. So don't worry about the wind. Instead, prepare with both great hope and expectation. To be honest, I think so many try to predict the times because they're unprepared. They actually have need of being fearful and recognize it and then try to attract others to drag them down with them. But what does it look like to be prepared? What does it look like to prepare for the day of the Lord? Well, Paul tells us in verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night, or those, for, excuse me, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So, one way you prefer, prepare for the day of the Lord 
is by being sober. And sober does not just mean you have a below 0.0% blood alcohol concentration. (laughs) Side note, why is that? Why does sober not just mean that? That's because just like with marriage, it's not the government that defines it. It's God who defines it. God defines soberness. And God, all throughout his word, encourages us to be sober-minded. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. Man, what a perfect verse of today. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.8 states, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 2 Timothy 4.5, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So when should we be sober-minded? Always. Wait a second. Are you saying even on the weekend... I need to be sober-minded? Yes. Are you saying even after a really hard day of work and I've come home, I've got to be sober-minded? Yes, always, even after a hard week at work. Why? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 is giving characteristics of those who are children of the light. And because you're children of the light, you're different 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. We're different. I mean, even in the Roman world, it was an abomination to get drunk during the day. Today, we still recognize this. It's why we come up with hokey songs like, It's 5 o'clock somewhere (laughs) to excuse our drunkenness during the day. But when Paul is talking on being sober, he's not just talking about being sober from alcohol. He's using symbolism. He's showing a very understandable concept that we all know, being drunk, to say this is not how believers act. And it's true. Believers shouldn't get drunk from alcohol. It's also a reason I have a problem with recreational marijuana. You can't smoke and be sober. Its point is to get high. Its point is to be drunk. But it's easy. I want to make this clear. It's easy to point at obvious substances and their use by others and say, well, I don't abuse drugs and alcohol, so I'm good. But we know that it's not just substances we struggle with that take our sober-mindedness. To be sober-minded means to literally be free from intoxicating influences. It's not allowing ourselves to be taken captive by any influences that lead us away from sound judgment. And nearly anything in our flesh in this world has that ability. Television, music, sports, various forms of entertainment, politics, the news. We were talking about in our community group how often we just scroll through social media Now it's a trap, which by the way, that's their whole goal is to keep you scrolling. (laughs) But we know this isn't all Paul is pointing to either. Again, one could say, you know, I don't get drunk off substances, and I don't even have a TV. Actually, I don't even know who won the last sports ball World Cup trophy ring thing. So I'm good. I'm free from these substances. Look at me. 
But one of the biggest things he's describing is that worry, specifically worry about the times and seasons of the day of the Lord is also imprudent. And this is why children of the light need not know the times or seasons, but must exercise self-control. Self-control and sober-minded are interconnected. It requires self-control to have a sober mind, and it affects so much of our life that Peter says it even affects our prayers. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things are at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Tim Keller, notable pastor and author who recently passed away and I've been very benefited by, defines self-control as the ability to do the important thing rather than the urgent thing. The ability to do the important thing rather than just the urgent thing. We think the important thing is to calculate when the Lord will return. And here's another example of an, important, of an urgent thing that we think is important. If I give the first fruits of my labor to the Lord in tithe, how will I have enough money to buy the things I want today or even save for retirement? But these are not important things. These are urgent things. The important thing would it be, be to know that the Lord is returning and I must prepare for whenever that is. The important thing in the second example would be faithfulness, trusting that the Lord provides and he's called me to give him a portion back with joyfulness of what he's already given me out of his storehouse. It's his anyway. You see, it's not about what goes into the body that defiles us, but what comes out. Mark 7.15 says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So alcohol, it defiles you when outcome, what outcomes is drunkenness. Having to know the times or seasons of the Lord's coming defiles you because outcomes worry and anxiety. We are much quicker to take responsibility for the things we take in than and then absolve ourselves of the things we spew out. The reality is it's good to not get drunk from substances. It's good to rid yourselves from defiling entertainment. These are things you should do and work actively at, but we are completely missing the point when outcomes hubris for our holiness in comparison to others. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. They thought they were being sober-minded in their following of the law, but in reality, they were drunk on their own self-discipline. Luke 18.11 says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He thought he was sober-minded, but he was drunk. This is not how the children of the light are to act. We must take captive our thoughts so as not to produce anxiety and worry. Matthew Henry, a theologian and minister from the 18th century, describes sober-mindedness as this. To be sober-minded is to make use of our reason in reasoning with ourselves, and in communing with our own hearts. It is to employ those noble powers and capacities by which we are distinguished from and dignified from the beasts. Basically, it's what separate, separates us from animals. 
We learned to walk when we were children. When will we learn to think, to think seriously, to think to the purpose? Our heads are full of floating thoughts, foreign and impertinent. When will we be brought to close and fixed thoughts, to think with concern and application of the great things that belong to our everlasting peace and welfare? So, to have to know the times or the seasons is not thinking on the great things. It's not setting our minds on the true hope we have. It's debasing ourselves to the levels of the beasts. So, as children of the light, we are to be ready in season and out of season. And we're ready in season and out of season by putting off apathy of thought, drunkenness of the mind. But I want to be clear because this is very popular today. To be absent-minded is not sober-minded. I know the Stoics are popular today. I've read Marcus Aurelius. I know there's a thought that we empty ourselves, and that is meditation. But that's not what we're called to in the scriptures. We must fill up. We remove and replace. We must replace. And so we're encouraged by Paul in verse 8 to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for hope or for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We're to replace these things with greater things. Some of you probably recognize this as an abbreviated version of Ephesians 6.10 when it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then goes on to show what we put on. But this language is not just 1 Thessalonians referring to Ephesians or vice versa. But it's really hearkening back to Isaiah 59, 17 in the Old Testament, which describes the very armor that God himself wears in waging war against his people's enemies. It says of God in Isaiah, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I show this because in being sober-minded, you're not just removing drunkenness. You're replacing it. And you're replacing this shabby clothing of drunkenness with mighty armor that the Lord himself wears. These aren't just random pieces of armor we found in the clearance section at the local Goodwill or Play It Against Sports. These are the same things the Alpha and the Omega adorns himself with. The same things the King of the universe wears. I read a book not too long ago about an earthly king. His name was Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great was a king of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex. And in his time, when facing enemies, they would create these things called shield walls. Each of the shoulders would carry these shields that were made of dense wood, and they'd wrap them in rawhide. This would make them so they were light enough to move around, but also strong enough so they could defend against people. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, this is top of mind because I'm watching it. Uh, there's basically an orc battalion that's running up. I know Ricky could give me the exact page number. <laughs> but they're running up against a city, and they have this wall they've created. This, we see this in other movies, too, where they've created shield walls. But they'd basically take these, they'd hold them in front of themselves like this, and they'd all stand up line by line. 
They'd line up next to their brothers in arms and they'd create a literal wall. In the book I read, it said that at the time a shield wall was virtually impenetrable against the weapons of the day. You have to think, they're not using guns, ammunition, they're using spears, they're using maybe the farthest reaching thing would be a bow, but then they're using swords, so it's a lot of hand-to-hand combat. But this shield wall was only impenetrable so long as it held together. As soon as a gap was cut, the enemy would just pour through the line and ravage them from behind. But unlike many of the leaders of our day, Alfred the Great, the king, would literally be on the front lines fighting and encouraging his soldiers to hold the line. And he'd be holding the very same shield they were, the very same armor they were wearing, he would wear, fully knowing that if a hole was cut in the line, they were all doomed to destruction. And I give this illustration for twofold purposes. Maybe three, because I just like the story. <laughs> but one, we do not have a king who is far off. We do not have a king that is naked and afraid up in some ivory tower calling out battle orders to be done on the battlefield by other people. We have a king who is amongst us, who wears the same armor we do, who took on flesh, lowering himself and being tempted in every way as you and I, yet did not sin. John 16, says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the other purpose is that us as soldiers in the army of the Lord, replacing faith, love, and hope of salvation with worry, anxiety, and drunkenness would be like Alfred the Great soldiers removing their mighty shields and not only not having something to defend, but taking on things that hurt them in the battle. Hebrews 12.1 reminds us what we should do with those things. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight. Lay aside the drunkenness. Let us lay aside the worry and anxiety and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Brothers and sisters, remove the drunkenness of mind and replace it with sober-mindedness. Remove the worry and anxiety about the day of the Lord and replace it with faith, love, and hope. And lastly, in the illustration I gave of the shield wall that the Wessex army would form against their enemies, there's a component there that lines right up with Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5. You see, that shield wall only worked in one scenario. And that scenario was the cooperation of every person on the wall. And not only the cooperation of having a shield, but also using it to defend. If even one of those soldiers lost their shield or went weak in the knees and a hole opened up, they all suffered for it. In the same way, we need each other to be strengthened, encouraged, and reminded of who we fight against, who we fight for, and who we fight with. This is why my last point of the morning is this. Children of light encourage one another in every season. Children of light encourage one another in every season. We must build one another up. And we do so in part by pointing to the hope that is on the horizon. Both 
through the surety given by looking back on Christ's first coming, which then gives us hope for a second. In the close of this section, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says exactly this. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. He's both telling what they should do, but he's also showing how they should do it. What a model. He's modeling it for him by he himself doing it in the letter, by encouraging them, saying, you encourage just as you are doing, by encouraging them. It's beautiful. Build one another up just as you are doing and just as he is doing to them. That first word, though, therefore, is a conjunction. It's connecting the previous statements with what's about to be said next. And I think this is a very important part. Because Paul says to encourage one another. And that word encourage in the Greek is called perikalio. It's used over 100 times in the New Testament. And it's used both in something that happens towards us from God. And something that we in turn do towards others. It means to come alongside. To comfort. To lift up in the same way our good Lord comforts us. So Paul is essentially saying that therefore... Because of all of these things that I've said, that your status is a child of light, that you are no longer in darkness but are of the light that we see in verse 4 and 5, and then your election to obtain salvation and eternal life with Christ is secured, comfort one another with this, with this hope, encourage each other with this, remind each other of this. Believers, we can have hope for the most terrible and great day of the Lord because of Christ's first advent, his death, burial, resurrection, and of his return. Let us comfort one another with this hope. There is dawn to the night, and we should know full well, because we are literally children of that day. And don't just stop there. But Paul goes on to say, build one another up. How? Well, here's one way. Remind one another that we have a king who fights for us, who is in the midst of us. Deuteronomy 3.22 says, You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. So we clothe ourselves with the same defenses that our king does, not just because it's prudent, but because he fights for us. And because we fight together, we can comfort and encourage one another. We point one another towards the future hope we have in Christ's second advent that is grounded in his first. Christ will complete his work. And so, as children of light, we soberly prepare with hope, a most glorious hope for the most terrible, for those who are not children of the light, but for us, the greatest day of the Lord, no matter the season. If you are not sure whether you are of the light or of the night, I plead with you, repent of your sins, put your only hope in the only one who can give you hope, the only Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you after service. Let's pray.